Brothers and sisters, please turn with me to our our text this morning, which comes from Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses eleven to eighteen. First or Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses eleven to eighteen. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, David says in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good And pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And isn't that true? Think about that in your own home when there is unity. When husbands and wives are on the same page working harmoniously together and the children cheerfully are obeying your parents. It is good and pleasant in the home. Even in our vocations, our businesses and companies run much better and you have greater team morale and happier employees when everyone's united, working together for the common good while everyone's stepping up and and doing their part. That's good for business. And yet this unity and peace oftentimes are short-lived. And the question you get when there is this disruption in peace and unity is, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we just have peace and unity? Why is peace, peace so brief and seem so unsustainable? And yet this isn't just true of our families or our, uh, and in our vocations and our, in companies and organizations, but this is also true of, of church communities as well. Many of us, perhaps, at some point in our, in our life have, have been a part of a church that was not peaceful or united at all. And we remember what that was like. And it was a, a terrible thing to be a part of. Seeing the, the church, the spiritual kingdom of God, behaving no different than the world. Right? People gossiping in the church. Having malice in their heart for one another. People putting their own self-interest above the interests of the church. People becoming easily offended, not willing to forgive. Then what happens? Clicks start to form in the church and you have many churches within inside the greater one. 
And all of these things can, can devastate the church and they devastate the, the witness of the church. And yet it's not as if we don't know the reason for this. We know the reason why peace and unity do not rule and it comes down fundamentally to who we are by nature. We are quick to trample people who offend us. We are quick to get angry and argue and cause disturbances if we feel slighted. That is because we are not peaceful people by nature. I think about what I see going on today. I'm not sure if any of you have heard the word cancel culture. If you listen to the news or you read the news, you might, you might hear that term. We live in a society that is now a cancel culture society. And, and that means, you know, let, let's say uh, a long time ago, you, you dressed up like, a, like an Indian when you were in college for Halloween. Well, nowadays, someone might find that image of you dressed up as an as a Indian for Halloween, and they might plaster that on the Internet, especially if you're someone of high standing, and they might then petition to have you lose your job because they say, look, this person's a racist. They dressed up like an Indian 20 years ago. And they try to destroy your life and ruin your life. And why is that? It's because we are not peaceful people by nature. But rather, instead, we prefer, we rather enjoy conflict. But Paul tells us why that is in Romans chapter 3. If you remember in the beginning of Romans 3, Paul saying that, that both Jew and Gentile are, are in the same predicament. None are righteous. None do good. But what does he say in verse 17? He says, And the way of peace they have not known. You see, this is the reason why the unbeliever cannot sustain peace. It is because the way of peace is foreign to them. The way of peace is foreign to the unbeliever. Right? True and lasting peace is not something that we can just muster inside of ourselves and turn on and turn off, but rather peace. And a peaceable disposition of the soul is something that is granted to us by God. And the unbeliever does not have this disposition or, or frame of their soul, which is why they don't pursue peace. You see, but the believer does. We are enabled by God. And so we have the ability to pursue peace with our neighbor. And we can and we should maintain a relationship of sweet fellowship one to another. But all too often, even we fail in maintaining this sweet fellowship with believers. Now there are many reasons for our failure, but I think the one overarching reason that we could point to would be disobedience to God. This is the reason that we fail in keeping peace within the church. Disobedience to God. And this is what Paul, I think, has been pointing out here in chapter 3. Paul said that the saints in Thessalonica, the believers who are obedient, were to keep away from those who walked in idleness, who were disorderly, who weren't heeding to the instruction that Paul had delivered. Not only were they not heeding 
to the instruction Paul delivered, but as he pointed out last week, he left them an, an example also of tirelessly working, of not being a burden on others. And he said, I left you this example so that you might imitate. And yet they refused and rejected his teaching as well as his example. And that is because they were disobedient. And as a result, the peace and unity in the church had been broken. Now remember, as we looked at verses 6-10, through 10, as Paul warned against disorderliness, saying that the, the, the unruly members were, were to be kept away from, we said that that meant no private fellowship. Right? We, we, we aren't to go hang around and spend time with those people in the church who were unruly and disorderly. Paul also said you, you weren't even to feed them. If they weren't willing to work, you aren't to help them to eat. But the reason that Paul did this is not so that they might suffer, right? but so that he, peace may be maintained in the church. You see, they, they fractured the peace in the church. And so in order to maintain peace, he says, keep away from them. Keep away from the disorderly and the unruly so that they might come back and peace might again be reestablished. For this is what the, the church, the local and, and universal body is called to. It's called to peace. And that makes sense because if we all worship the same God and we are all indwelt by the same Spirit, shouldn't we be at peace with one another? Not fighting, not warring. The hand shouldn't be seeking evil for the foot. That's self-destructive. And how can the church stand if we are attacking one another? We aren't able to accomplish our mission that we have been set forth by God to proclaim the Gospel and to be an example to the world if we are tearing one another down. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, we're told that God hates the one who sows discord among the brothers. But instead, as image bearers of Christ, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. And it's this peace within our hearts and within the church that Paul is seeking to promote this morning. Right? Peace within the church so that we might be a faithful witness to the world of a God-honoring, Christ-exalting fellowship of saints who live in an orderly manner and in obedience to the Word of God. And so this morning as we conclude our study in 2 Thessalonians. This is what we want to look at today. How we are able to maintain peace within the church. And so there are three points for you this morning I want to look at. The first point is by doing good. By doing good. The second is by being motivated by love. And the third is through God. So doing good, being motivated by love, and through God. So for our first point, look to verses 11 to 13 once more with me, please. Where Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. See, the problem once again that Paul's addressing is that some were walking in idleness, or we said disorderliness, because they quit working. They stopped earning a wage 
And instead, they spent their time troubling the church with their distorted eschatological views of when Christ was going to return. Some said He could return at any moment. That's why they quit working. Others thought He had already returned in some spiritualized manner. And so they said, well, why work? We're, we're, we're enjoying our eternal rest. But whatever was driving their sinful behavior was born out of this false doctrine and out of error. And so Paul writes in response to them, having those who have been deceived and quit working and have become busybodies, those who have, are meddling in others' affairs and not living quietly and working hard. And, and Paul says in verse 11 quite cleverly, as he uses a, this play on words to describe them, he says this, right? Not, they weren't busy at work, but they were busy bodies. This is a, a play on words here that Paul uses. And this is how Calvin interprets it. He translates what Paul's saying here is, they do nothing, but have enough to do in the way of curiosity. They do nothing, but have enough to do in the way of curiosity. And I think we can understand what, what Paul's saying and, how, and what Calvin means as he interprets this. And it's this, right? They, they do a whole lot, but it's a whole lot of nothing. They do a whole lot, but it's a whole lot of nothing. And I think all of us know what that's like. I think all of us at some point in our, in our life, and I know that, that I have, it's been true of me, you say to yourself, man, I feel like I got a lot done today. But then as you look back over your day, you're like, ah, I thought I got a lot done, but in actuality, I really didn't get much done. Maybe I got a bunch of unnecessary and unimportant things done. You know, maybe I binge-watched all my favorite Bruce Lee movies for ten hours, right? But when you were doing that, all the important work that you were supposed to be doing sat on the wayside and just built up and built up. And these are the people that Paul's addressing here, right? Those who are doing everything else except for what God has instructed them to do. They were being unruly, right? They, and they thought that they were being busy, though, in their unruliness. But in reality, they weren't. They weren't busy at all. They weren't working to earn a wage to feed themselves and their families. And so they became a burden on the church, looking for church members to feed them and provide their means. Instead, they brought contempt upon the church and the gospel from the outsiders who've seen this intolerable behavior. They were the cause of unrest in the church. And so what does Paul say then in response? In verse 12, he says, I command you in the Lord Jesus to do your work quietly. Earn your own living. Repeating once more that admonishment that he gave them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And yet this time he follows up though with words of encouragement for those believers who were being obedient. And he says in verse 13, As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Essentially what Paul's getting at is that for those of you who are doing good, keep doing it. Those of you who aren't doing good, start doing it. But Paul doesn't want those who are doing good to grow weary in doing good. He doesn't want them to become tired in doing what is right just because others aren't. And I think we all know what that's like. We've all probably worked at a job in which people sat around and did nothing and maybe they sat in their 
cubicles and they all talk while you're doing your work and you said, why am I doing all the work? Why don't I just sit around and do nothing as well? Right? But Paul says, don't become unfaithful because they're unfaithful. Don't become neglectful in your Christian duty because they've become neglectful. Don't become disobedient because they've become disobedient. Continue to do what is good, Christian. Continue to do what is good. And so we have to ask, well, what is good? What is, what is Paul addressing here? What is good? Well, I think it's interesting that oftentimes in Scripture, this phrase doing good or to do good is linked to the law of God. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 18, where we read this, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. You see, here he's talking about doing, doing good, obeying the law, that same law that Jesus Himself highlights as He summarizes the moral law in the two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is saying to these saints and in telling them to continue to do good is to continue to love God. Continue loving your neighbor. Continue obeying God's commands. That is what all of us are to do. To continue to do what is good. But if that is what is, is good, right? essentially loving God and loving neighbor, then can't we see why Paul views their disorderliness as such a foul sin? Because in being disorderly, they were not showing love to God. They were not showing love to neighbor. They were being disobedient to all of God's command. And rather, they were just loving themselves doing what they wanted. And we see the harm that that causes in society when people are self-lovers. I mean, think about family members who start embracing in a moderate view of self-love and how that will inevitably cause fractures in the peace of the home. Think about fathers who embrace in a moderate view of self-love A lot of times, what happens? That's the reason they abandon their wife and kids for something that they find far more intriguing. Or we can think of mothers who embrace an immoderate view of self-love who leave their husbands and their children because they're tired and resentful from having to sacrifice in the home and want to go out and do things that they think will make themselves happy. right? But these homes become shattered homes. No peace. Rather, disorder and chaos. And just like that, brothers and sisters, though, we too are a family. And so the question is, is what type of family are we? Because like it or not, we are, off, we are each each other's family members. God has brought us into this family. But thankfully, For you and I, we don't define the family identity. God already has. And so He simply calls us into the family. He gives us the family name. He graces us with the family privileges. But now He tells us to walk as a member of the family. And one of the defining traits of the family of God 
is peace. And if we are to be at peace and represent our family well, then Paul says, continue doing good. And you do that by not focusing on yourself, but focusing on God and His honor. Focusing on your neighbor. Doing good to them. Desiring their good. When we do that then, we will experience in fact how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Because as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Isn't that what we desire, each and every one of us? To be blessed by God, to be called sons and daughters of God? Isn't that what we desire here for our church? Well, if it is, then let us pursue peace, each and every one of us. And we do that by obeying God's commands. We do it by living quietly, by working hard, not becoming a burden on one another. By loving one another. And that means not doing anything that would harm each other. Because you wouldn't harm yourself. Yet unfortunately, because we remain in these sin-stained bodies, we still transgress God's law. And we still sin against one another, even though now our soul is inclined towards peace. But yet usually, normally what you see is if someone sins and they are rebuked, they repent and they turn from it. But there are those who, upon being rebuked and admonished, still will not listen. And even as Paul says in verse 6, to keep away from them. Even after you keep away from these people, they still refuse to listen and heed our Lord's instruction. And this is why Paul then goes on to pen verse 14 and 15. And he says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may become ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now it is these verses that lead us into our second point this morning, which is that if we are to have peace, we need to be motivated by love in everything that we do and in everything that we say. Because too often, brothers and sisters, we are guilty of going to extremes. And let me give you a couple examples of what I mean, of us being guilty of going to extremes. Think about your own conversion. Or think about the conversion of others that you know of. Um, Or think about conversion stories that you've heard. Oftentimes what you'll find is, let's say, a brother who uh, abused alcohol. Uh, On the weekends, he would get drunk. But now he is converted. And what happens? He sees alcohol as being from the devil. It's a sin to drink it. And he tries to dissuade everyone else from touching alcohol upon their lips. You see, he's gone from one extreme to the other. From abusing it to dissuading everyone from using it. I heard a story many years ago of, of a brother and sister who, upon conversion, got rid of their, te- their television set. They threw it away. Now, there's nothing wrong if you don't want a television set in your house or if you don't want alcohol in your house. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's the reason behind it? Right? They, they threw it away thinking that the TV was evil and I must rid myself of it. 
But just because they polluted their minds with what they watched prior to conversion doesn't necessarily mean now that the TV's evil once they've been converted. But this is what I mean. Oftentimes, we go from one extreme to the other. And oftentimes, you see that in a lot of new converts. They go from one extreme to the other. They're not able to identify right, that it wasn't so much the alcohol or the TV that's the problem. They were the problem in their, their sinful and unlawful use of those things. But we all understand that wisdom comes with time. Right? You have to grow in wisdom. Right? We need wisdom given to us through study as the Spirit applies that to our lives. And it's this wisdom then that, and this maturity that Paul shows then here in his command in verses 14 and 15. Because he cautions the saints here to not go to the extreme. He tells them, don't go to one extreme. Now, exactly what he means here is up for some debate. And so I want to, I want to give you both, both sides of what Paul's saying. Okay? So, so one position says what Paul is saying here is that the church, remember they admonished already. Now they were been told to keep away. And so now some believe that what Paul's saying is you're to go one step further in keeping away from them. So they might look like, like withholding uh, the table fellowship from them. Right? They, they're not able to participate in the Lord's Supper. And the reason why they think this is because in verse 15, Paul says don't treat them like an enemy, but admonish them like a brother. And so if you were to admonish them like a brother, then they say, well, hey, this can't mean excommunication. This just must mean another step past keeping away from them. Now, the other viewpoint is that, in fact, what Paul here is talking about is excommunication. Right? Paul already admonished them. They didn't listen. Paul said to keep away from them, and they still didn't listen. So now he says they are to be removed from the church so that they are to be ashamed. And this is what I think is more likely what Paul is actually saying here. And I'll tell you why. It's this phrase that Paul uses in verse 14. Have nothing to do with them. Okay? This is the exact same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in dealing with the son who took his father's wife. And that text had to do with excommunication. If you'd like to, you can turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Go look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. This is what Paul says. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then look at verse 13. Purge this evil person from among you. And so see, what, what Paul is saying in our text here today is remove this person from the assembly, but don't treat them like an enemy, saying don't treat them as if there's no hope for them, no return for them, but instead warn them like a wayward brother who is in dire need of help. They must be removed 
for they are disturbing the peace in the church. But if the goal of the church is peace, and the aim of excommunication isn't to forsake someone, but so that they see their sin and they would come back, right? then we, it makes sense that we don't promote peace in the church by treating them like enemies, but instead we promote peace in the church by being gentle and kind and loving to them so that they would return to us, showing themselves, in fact, to be a brother or a sister in the faith. And in fact, I think that this is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'd like to, you can turn there as well. As commentators point out that what Paul says here in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, starting at verse 5, is about the brother who sinned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and who was put out by the church. And this is, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort, or he may become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, Paul is saying the one who was excommunicated in 1 Corinthians has now returned and you are to forgive him in 2 Corinthians. Yet you see, though, this only happens when we are motivated by love for our neighbor so that when we do that thing that is most difficult, they will see the love that is behind it. If they are a true brother or sister in Christ, it will pierce their hearts. They will look and say, see how much the church loved me even though I was lazy and unwilling to work and even though I was meddling in their affairs and I've become a burden. They will see the love of the church. Love for our neighbor enables us then to correct them. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Right? This is how the church ought to be motivated by love to act. Not being excessive. Not going to the extremes. Not high-fiving each other and saying, man, I'm glad that annoying person's out of the church. But instead, praying for them. Treating them gently with love. Desiring their return. This is what a peaceable body of saints do. They seek and are motivated to maintain a relationship with our neighbor that is characterized by sweet peace and unity. Because just think about it. If you were to treat them harshly, and if you were to treat them like an enemy... If they are to return, that doesn't help provide any peace for when they return, does it? No, they might repent of their sin and return, but there will not be peace because they're going to remember how harshly you mistreated them. And so, brothers and sisters, we must beware of our own propensity to go to the extreme 
And we must be careful not to exercise that even in church discipline. And what that means for us is that we must take into account the words of Jesus that He gives to Peter in Matthew chapter 18. If you remember, Peter approaches Jesus and he says, you know, how many times are we to forgive someone who sins against us? And I imagine he's thinking, eh, Jesus is going to say, you know, two or three times and then just be done with them. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus' answer was this, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. You see, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful because we have a tendency to deal with others in a way that we wouldn't want to be dealt with ourselves. Isn't that true? We have a tendency to deal with others in a way that we would not want to be dealt with ourselves. I mean, we, we see this, I'm sure, or heard stories of this, where someone has repented in church for their sin. And we say, ah, oh, yeah, you're forgiven. But then we treat them like they're a leper. You haven't really forgiven them. And you, that doesn't foster peace. And that's not the type of forgiveness that we would want Christ to offer to us, is it? But look at what Christ offers to us, right? Christ doesn't cease to have communion with us because of a a sin, does He? He doesn't cease to have communion with us now out of the daily multitude of sins that we commit. And so we ought to, just like Christ, be quick to forgive and not quick to cut off. And so we must exhibit this this type of behavior towards one another in the church. And yet, when situations arise, those difficult situations, we must also be ready to mark out the disorderly so that we can keep the peace within the church that God has called us to. And yet, we ought to be motivated by love to treat them gently so that when they return, there will still be peace in the church. And yet, we would be remiss to talk about peace without talking about the very source of peace who Paul says is the Lord of peace. The One who enables us to have peace. A peace that is foreign to the unbeliever. And yet a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so look with me then at uh, verses 16-18 to of 2 Thessalonians. Verses 16-18 to where Paul says this, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so we have to ask, though, in reading that, why does Paul highlight that he is the Lord of peace? Why doesn't he say the Lord of love or the Lord of mercy or the Lord Almighty? Well, he's doing that because at this moment, the saints need peace. There's agitation and conflict and confrontation going on. And disorder has usurped peace. And so Paul says at this moment, he calls out to the Lord of peace to give this church the peace they need. And this peace that they need isn't just an agreement. It's not just, Lord, help them to just say yes and go along with everyone else but rather it is the very frame of the heart, a peaceful frame of the heart that Paul is asking for. 
This is why the unbelieving world will never have peace. Because they don't have a, a heart or a frame or disposition of the soul that is peaceable. And apart from the Lord, you will never attain it. Because as Paul says in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You see, any hope of peace or a peaceful disposition of the soul only comes through the grace of God. It is this peace that is lasting. And as a church, when we see this peace, when we see one another having the, the same heart and the same mind between brothers and sisters in the church, in fact, this is not exactly what David says in Psalm 133. Isn't it, is it not a, a good and pleasant thing to behold? This is what God blesses. The peacemakers. And so, let us strive here to be peaceable with one another and all men by doing good. Let us deal with those who sin in a gentle manner motivated by love so that when they return, we do not hinder peace in the church. And let us continue to seek the Lord of peace at every turn for everything that we need. Let us pray to Him that He continue to allow peace to reign in this church. But most importantly, let us not lose sight of the One who has brought us peace. Let us not lose focus on Christ in all that we have said today. Because in our own strength, none of us could follow these precepts that Paul outlines. We can only do so because Christ first established peace for us with the Father by His blood on the cross. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. That it was through Christ that He reconciled all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It was on the cross that peace was made for us. We who stood in opposition to God in a relationship of wrath as sinner to judge now have been brought near to God and stand in a relationship of love as father to children. As Christ purchased us by His blood, brought us into this covenant fellowship with God, having made us heirs to the covenant promises, having made us recipients of the covenant blessings. And yet, this is the only way that we might have peace is through Christ's blood. And so let us honor God and show our deep affection for Him and for one another by pursuing peace by standing side by side in this church as the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, as we with one voice together proclaim the Gospel of peace. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Christ, for Him making a way that we might be reconciled to You through Uh, peace by the blood of Christ that was shed upon the cross. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to grant to us that peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray, Lord, for that peace to reign in our hearts here, that the church be a church that promotes peace in every way and most especially proclaims Your Gospel of peace. We pray, Lord, that You would uh, show us the sinfulness of disorderliness and unruliness in the church, Lord, that we might flee from it and might seek to be orderly and obedient children to You. 
We pray, Lord, that You would teach us this day all that You have revealed to us in Your Word this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.